Welcome to Moving On. Here you will get expert information, tips, and most importantly, the tools to moving on to a healthy, happy, and thriving life that you want to be living. Letting go of whatever is holding you back, whether you are in an unhealthy relationship or learning how to be in a healthy one, or maybe you are in a job that you've been dying to move on from, Learn to let go of what's holding you back and become the thriving, healthy, and happy person that is inside you. Welcome to Moving On. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Moving On, where I talk to experts who have moved on in their own lives, whether it's from jobs, their own life, or relationships, anything in their life where they have found a new way of either coping, coming out more positive, something where it's been a huge turning point in their life. And today I have with me Monica Berg. Hey, Monica. Hi, it's good to be here. Glad to have you. So let me tell you guys a little bit about Monica and we'll get right into talking. So Monica Berg is an international speaker, spiritual thought leader, and author of Fear is Not an Option and Rethink Love. Monica is a fresh voice that channels years, or I'm sorry, her many years of Kabbalistic study along with personal life experiences to show individuals how to create a life that not only feels like it's working, but most importantly, a life in which they are living and loving as the powerful, fulfilled person they've always wanted to be. She battled and overcame a debilitating eating disorder at a young age, and as a mother of four children, one of whom has special needs, she's become an outspoken advocate for him and others struggling to find their voices. Wow. That's great. <laughs> That's great. No, it's awesome. Um, and I have such an interest in the Kabbalah, by the way. I actually just bought a book on shamanism and Kabbalah. So, oh, really? Yes. Yes. It's so funny. Yeah. yeah Kabbalah is amazing. I started studying when I was 17. I found it really early in life, which um, started to inform all of my life's decisions. So I feel really blessed that I discovered it when I did. Because by 17, believe it or not, I was already tired. Like, what's this point of life? This thing that we call life. I mean, a lot of things just didn't make sense. And, and even at a young age, I just watched people around me chasing after things that didn't bring them happiness. So I was like, who has answers here? That's really interesting because it sounds like you were probably an old soul, I'm guessing, where you yeah. were wise beyond your years. I mean, even at like age three, four, I remember having tea parties with God. I mean, I really felt very connected to something higher. And then when I was around 12, you know, and then through those years, um, I was very confused. I lost sight of who I was. And I went to Beverly Hills High School and, you know, you're you're the environment you're in, basically. Um, And then what I rediscovered myself was through studying this wisdom. And I felt that connection again. It felt familiar. That's interesting that it felt familiar. And when you say felt familiar, is it because you feel like you came into this world with that information or what do you mean by that? Uh, I felt like I had rediscovered something that my soul had learned before and had understood. And all of the questions that I had had, you know, like what's the point of life or, you know, where's the manual really, you know, how are we supposed to live a happy, authentic life? I felt like when I started to delve into the wisdom, I got those answers, you know, ideas like um, reincarnation about cause and effect about why people suffer. I mean, real things that if you don't understand, you can kind of go through life, not taking responsibility for the things that happen to you 
and be in this victim mentality. And that's no good for anybody. That is true. I always say if we took self-responsibility in hand, we would have world peace. We'd have everything. Yes. <laughs> it would make a difference. And so tell me a little bit, you know, when you were growing up and you're saying you were watching people chasing after things and they still weren't finding happiness. So there had to be something that told you happiness must be something different than what the people around you were achieving and whatever they were achieving that must not have had the meaning that people were saying it had. I mean, what was the reason that you were able to see that? Well, it's interesting. I talk a lot about um, emotions and in Rethink Love, my, my latest book, I have a whole chapter on using emotions as feedback, right? That they're data and they're information and they're here to really tell you something about yourself. And very often people become their emotion and therefore they stay stuck in that place also for far too long. Again, emotions are necessary. They tell us a really important part of who we are, how we deal with things, but more importantly, who we can evolve into becoming when you overcome the emotion. And you know, to do that, you need to kind of approach it like a scientist. So what I started to realize is that everybody has a default emotion, which is it's the place you go to when you get triggered. Some people get really angry. I would get sad. The first experience that I had that, and I'm not a depressed person. I've never suffered from depression, thank God. But it was, that was my default emotion. So the first time was when my uncle became schizophrenic. I was seven and it was seemingly overnight. And there was, all I remember is a lot of chaos. The adults were scared and crying did not explain anything to me. And the truth is, if they had, things like pre-genetic disposition would have come up and I would have been terrified anyway, right? But so I dealt with that with sadness, right? And also some fear. And then a little bit later in life, when I had an eating disorder, again, very lonely, very sad place to be very isolating. And again, when I had my son, Josh, and he was born with Down syndrome, and I only found his diagnosis out four hours after his birth, I thought I was having a typical child throughout my pregnancy. Again, sadness followed with and coupled with anxiety. So what I realized is that when you have these kinds of emotions that come up for you, you can transform that into a place of growth and strength. And I refuse to let the situations and things that have happened in my life to label me. And I'm definitely not going to be labeled as a sad person. So I realized it was just energy. And then I was able to transform that into strength. So when I feel like I'm not in control, then I get sad and that's the equation. So when you realize that, well, what are my options, right? How can I become in control? So to answer your question, when I met myself with sadness, there wasn't anybody who could explain anything to me of how to get out of it, right? They were just trying to figure it out and they were in their own movies and their own chaos. And that's when they were struggling. And even when they were happy, it's like, okay, so we made a little bit more money. Now I feel happy. Or my father was a millionaire and then he lost all of his money and then he was unhappy, right? So I saw all of these reactions to physicality and then still people search for more physicality because they think that's what's going to make them happy. When in fact, it's more about being in the now, transforming into a higher level of consciousness and also deriving purpose and meaning from the most difficult of challenges that happen. Those kinds of answers, right? The, what I just explained to you, I had to discover that because nobody was really understanding that and they just were suffering. And I think that that's why part of my mission is to help people who are in pain and who are suffering. 
I think that sounds like a great mission and I understand it because I've had the same mission myself. And one of the things though that I wanna go back to before we carry on with that is you were talking about, you know, you had an eating disorder. So I'm assuming there were things going on and maybe this is a form of control. Like what was, what was it that brought about your eating disorder? Well, it's interesting, and, and that's another passion of mine is really to help um, people struggling. It's not just girls. I mean, boys also struggle with that, and now it's happening at even younger age, along with many other things. Um, and I remember at the time, yeah, it was definitely that I felt like I was losing complete control, and I used to be. I'm a recovering perfectionist, so control was really important to me, be, having everything be perfect and just right and never making a mistake, and that's an impossibility. Um, and at the same time, you know, they've learned that it is genetic, but there's triggers, right? So it's environment, it's your home life. Um, again, it's that internal aspect, that part of your personality. But my father was really struggling after he had lost all his money. My parents were fighting a lot. And we went back, we used, I was born in Thibodeau, Louisiana. We went back to New Orleans where we had lived when we had money. And it was the first time we went back, but now my father didn't. And for him, not that money is everything, but for him it was. So he was a broken man. And it was just, I mean, and I'm the middle child. So Monica, can you fix it? Monica this, Monica that. And I think that I remember the night that it actually happened, believe it or not. Um, I was sitting at a restaurant and it was the last night we were in New Orleans. And I just couldn't take it anymore. Everybody was fighting. My sister was having a problem. Like, I just remember sitting at the table and it was really noisy and I got really silent and I started to push my fork around and I was like, I never have to eat again. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Like the craziest thing that came over me. So it was about control, but I think also at the core, it was a lack of self-love and self-care because if you don't have the ability to nurture yourself, not only with food, right? There was just a basic human need, but also with love. I mean, you don't go lower than that. So the blessing in that is it really made me start to be authentic, become vulnerable, find my voice and be able to go after what I desired and not have shame and wanting. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting because, you know, and I think this is a lot of us, right? We're not raised by people who are self-aware. We're not raised by people who are invested in self-love because they don't know any better because they weren't brought up with it. And so, of course, as a kid or as a teenager, and you're realizing something's off or something's not right, or you're trying to gain that control, I think that what we're looking for is really difficult because we don't even know where to begin to look for it when it hasn't been part of our upbringing. It's also terrifying when the people that brought you into this world and your elders who should have figured some of it out at that point are looking terrified or sad or really having their own struggle in a very obvious way. I, I think that that's really what made me feel like, oh my God, I need to figure this out and really grasping control because everybody seemed to be spiraling, including me. Right, well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think in the family dynamic, um, that we tend to react off of one another, whether we want to or not. So what was it that got you to the point where you were able to stop your eating disorder or what were the chain of events that happened? Well, this is so interesting because, you know, and I was never, I was always a size four, like it was never like a, 
the struggle with my weight. It was really the feeling I had about myself deep inside, right? It's not so much what I look like on the outside. You would have never been able to tell um, when I was struggling with the thoughts. But I remember one day, and I had lost. So now at this point, I'm in the throes of an eating disorder. I'm like a double zero. I, I lost so much weight. And everybody's like, that's what I'm like, go a few pounds. And then I would see the faces, but I couldn't see it. If I looked in the mirror, I saw this really heavy, like morbidly obese person. Like that's what I saw, which is the crazy thing that this disorder does with the distortion. And then one morning I was wearing a nightshirt and I was doing my annual pinch test. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. <laughs> so um, you take your forefinger and your thumb and you basically pinch your waist, right? And in my mind, I'm like pinching this much fat, but it was really just skin, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like doing this and all of a sudden I'm looking in the mirror and for the first time in years, I saw what I looked like. I call it the gift of sight. Like suddenly the veils were removed and I saw the skeletal version of myself looking back at me and I was terrified. I started screaming, oh my God, what did I do to myself? Oh my God, like hysterical. My mom comes running in the bathroom. I'm shaking. And she was, you know, at that point she expected my heart to give out at any moment. So like me screaming, she's like running in. We started holding each other, crying. And I just could not believe what I did. And then I knew that I would, probably not see that again, but then I knew I had a problem. So, and sure enough, when I looked in the mirror hours later, I saw the other version, but I knew that that was false now. So it was the first time I actually saw. And then from that point, I started to journal. Um, I started to really go deep into the shame that I felt. And I allowed myself the permission to express what I wanted, what I was disappointed by, what I was confused by. And I started to be kind to myself. I started to turned down that negative voice, negative belief systems. And I started to turn up what was now inaudible, the voice really of my soul. And slowly, slowly in doing that work, I was able to, um, I worked really hard in those years and I was so lonely. I just wanted to meet somebody and fall in love. And I knew that would be a mistake because I was broken. So I did that work. And then when I still had my eating disorder, my husband and I met and, um, and, it, and nine months later, we were married. Wow. And, I, and then I, and I recovered. I mean, it's, it, it, it was the love I found for myself, but it was also, it was the first time I felt seen, truly seen by another person. And we just laughed and had fun together. And we had the same purpose in life, which was to help the world and also to further evolve ourselves throughout our lives, right? That spiritual aspect. So how old were you at that time? I was young. I was 23. Wow. I mean, yeah. and that's interesting that you both had that same desire. Um, Cause at 23, a lot of people are still trying to figure out what they want to do or who they are. Well, that's the interesting thing. He was born into Kabbalah. His family started the Kabbalah centers around the world. So he was very evolved. He was 24. We were very young and we had zero experience between the two of us. We would joke like it's, we're lucky it worked out, but in all honesty, we're going on 24 years in August and I think it's just that we both really throughout our lives um, were clear about what was important and we worked hard to get there early. That's interesting. I mean, I kind of feel like I've always had that same sort of feeling so I can relate to that of wanting to make the world a better place. And I think most people I interview, that's really the goal as well. And so when you've had to move on from things, what 
were some of the things that you've been faced with where you really had to dig deep and you knew that you weren't in control of the situation? Everything. <laughs> I mean, that was the big thing. I, I really realized like, you know, and I realized that it's funny because if I, the, the things that I mentioned that shaped me, right. The, my uncle eating disorder, my son's birth. Um, and especially with my son's birth, I realized that the only control that you have in life is your perspective and your ability to change your perspective and to create a higher one. Right. And that we wake up in the morning with a plan or after nine months of growing a baby inside of you, you have an expectation of a healthy child, right? There's certain things we think are absolute. And yes, you can have a plan and you can have goals and you can have desires. The truth of the matter is you never know what's going to happen on any given day at any moment. And I think, and so when I really understood that so completely, because I was so, my whole world was, was rocked basically. I said, okay, I'm going to really lean all the way the other way and embrace change, embrace flexibility, embrace the unknown, because that is the greatest fear that everybody has in life. But it's also the biggest trick because we never know what's going to be. So that became the theme, the central theme of my life. And, um, and it's the thing that makes me feel the happiest and most free. That's amazing because most people are, are looking and I, you know, not necessarily for the material thing, like you were talking about in the beginning, but looking for something that isn't transient outside of them to hold onto so that they feel safe. And it's like the only safety you have is inside of you. And if you have a spiritual connection, but that's, that's it. There's nothing out here. And what I find fascinating is when people are struggling, you know, like they keep that struggle up for so long, like their whole life. Like if I just achieve this or I just have that, then I'm going to be okay. Exactly. And, and the sad thing is that people can spend their entire lives searching for that. Right. And then one day, or maybe never, they might wake up and say, well, where did the last 10 years go? You know, why did I think that was so important? It's not important anymore. So I just always encourage people because you can't force spirituality, you can't force consciousness. But I always, I always ask people to ask themselves questions every day, to get emotional feedback from themselves. Check in every day, repeatedly. Are you happy? Are you living what the life you want to live? Are you at least taking small steps towards your curiosity or what interests you instead of just living a robotic existence? Because it's very easy to get stuck in that. And I think that we're hardwired as human beings to feel certain and to feel safe, like you said, and feel like we have everything under control. And that's why people crave change, but they resist change because people go through life accumulating things. You know, now I have the house I want, and I have the job I have, I have security, don't take anything away, but that's not gonna bring you happiness. We're meant to completely change each and every day. I hope tomorrow, the Monica that I am today is unrecognizable. I hope I'm a new person tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. I think that's great. And I tend to subscribe to that same theory. I believe that there is a flow of life that you can live in if you continually surrender to it rather than fight it. Absolutely. So, um, so when it comes to, well, I, I actually should have asked this at the beginning because I don't know if all listeners know what the Kabbalah is. So since you are Monica at Kabbalah.com, I thought, you know, you might want to share with uh, the people listening, you know, what is the Kabbalah? 
So Kabbalah is an ancient wisdom that explains the complexities of the material world and the non-material world. It gives you tools to transform, to be able to see the gifts and the biggest challenges. Um, and it's based on principles that have you be aware of what you're putting out into the world, right? It's taking responsibility for everything you do, say, act, power of your thoughts. And it's really about choosing, for instance, to live a proactive life and a proactive existence versus a reactive one. It's understanding cause and effect. It's understanding that each and everything you do matters. And the whole goal in this lifetime, according to Kabbalah, is to transform yourself into the most evolved state that you have the potential of becoming. That's a beautiful thing. I like that. Yeah. So for those of you listening, now you know, in case you didn't know. And um, I mean, and I, I knew to a certain degree, you know, I was born Jewish. So it's, um, but never really practicing because um, my dad came from a concentration camp. And oh, so, wow. yeah. And so uh, he didn't really have a lot of beliefs as far as religion went. Like we kind of tried it, kind of didn't kind of thing. Um, but anyways, I find it interesting because there's so much new age information out there, right? That I feel like it had to come from somewhere. And so to me, maybe that's, you know, part of where a lot of people have gotten these new age thoughts from are some of these ancient scriptures. Yes. Truth is truth. And it's, you know, and that's why you'll see similarities in many things. Um, yeah. The Kabbalah is ancient. <laughs> So tell me then a little bit about, you know, cause I know you've written a book and also you help people. So what does that look like? How are you helping people? And, you know, what is it that you offer to them? Uh, well, many things I, I've written two books. The first one is called fear is an option. Fear is a big thing that stops people from living their best life, right? It literally paralyzes people in many ways. Uh, fear of failure, fear of rejection, illogical fears, real fears. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then my second book, Rethink Love, is about relationships. It's a three-part book. And actually, I did a webinar last night, and I have two more coming up, and a thousand people joined and stayed the, for the whole time that we did it. Um, and it's really working on what I've come to understand as truths that help you live a happy life. So it's based on science, on Kabbalah, um, on couples I've counseled and their stories, on my own personal stories. So the first part of the book is called Me. And it is the most important fundamental step that each person needs to go through in their life. I don't care if you're single. I don't care if you're 80. I don't care if you're married. It's really learning to love who you are, find your authentic voice um, so that it will inform all of your other relationships. And even that's why it's harder to do when you're already in a relationship, but it is the most important thing to do. And that's eight chapters long. And basically that's everything that helped me heal from anorexia was to be able to embody those teachings. The next part of the book is going from me to we, and that is about how to maintain who you are while navigating a relationship. And then the last is we, and that's how to consistently elevate your relationship to the potential of what it can be because each relationship is meant to get better and better. Love is never enough, right? Um, so I meet with people and I help them. I help them apply these tools to their lives. That's awesome. And I think that's helpful in terms of, 
it sounds like you work with people in different stages of their lives, but it's yes. all applicable. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so what are, you know, if you had a story to tell, what would your story be around how you've been able to move on through your life? You know, I think the biggest thing of all um, is to, I've learned to appreciate the opposition. I think most people in life, you know, they think it's a sign or a bad sign if people are opposing them or if it's difficult or um, are negative towards them. Either they take it personally because they don't know who they are, right? Again, that fundamental first step of knowing me. But I've come to see that all of the obstacles that I've had, all the opposition that's put, been put in my way, um, even by, by people that were close to me, what a gift. Because I never, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to help people, but I never thought I would write a book, not to mention two. I was terrified of public speaking. I never would have gone after the things that I did if I wasn't being opposed. So I'm really grateful for that. I think that everybody needs opposition. Um, and I talk about this story in my books. I have a whole chapter on it because I really think it's so powerful. It's the movie, it was in a movie called Rush and it's race car drivers, Nikki Lada and James Hunt. And they were both rivals really, amazing race car drivers. And one day Nikki Lada, his car gets, catches on fire and he's got like third degree burns all over his body. He can hardly even breathe. And he's in the hospital for a really long time. And when he's in the hospital, he just keeps watching James Hunt win race after race. And he's like burning up now inside also. And the doctor says to him, stop looking as this opposition as a curse. It can be a blessing too. He said, a wise man learns more from his enemy than a fool does from a friend. And what he realized is that, and, and by the way, later James Hunt came to him and said, I feel responsible for you, what happened to you? And he said, well, you are to some extent, but actually you're also the one that got me out of this bed and he started to race again. So when they stopped seeing each other and their differences as personal, they were able to appreciate the gift that they were for each other in their lives because they made each other better at what they did and at what they loved. And I think that that is the thing that continually inspires me. Mm -hmm. to never give up and to keep going after things. Do you have any stories like that in your life where there's been something that's so clear, like, wow, this happened. And at first I thought it was a curse and then it became something so much better. Nobody's ever asked me, but I do. And I have never talked about it really. Um, yeah, there was somebody that was really close, um, part of a, a family member actually, that also we worked with and um and he opposed my husband and i for 20 years and really attacked our character and you know the thing about character is once somebody attacks that you know and says something that is negative whether it's a truth or a lie it can never really be taken back right once it's out in the universe it's out there and people either choose to believe it or not and even if you show them another side of yourself they're still tainted it's very hard to actually get that back um so I, I didn't realize he was doing it for 20 years and I, I didn't realize how much he sabotaged and, but, and of course, when I found out I was hurt and it was horrible and I was shocked, but I remember throughout the 20 years, the gift, again, I wrote books, I started speaking, 
um, my husband and I really leaned into each other because that's all we had. We were best friends. It was kind of like, what's going on here? Is everybody crazy or is it us? Like, you know, and, um, and I think that it made us be better listeners, be more humble. Like I can just give you a list and a list, long, long list of all of the blessings that came from that. And I also believe that when things happen in your life, it's meant to be, it's another Kabbalistic principle that, you know, whatever happens there is, it's for your greatest good, but you have to see it that way. I think that's the hardest thing for people to see when they're in the middle of going through something. For sure. Especially if you have a victim mentality, right? Um, again, that work of self-love and self-worth is so important because if you don't find that, then everything's going to feel personal. Then it's really hard to recover from rejection and judgments, right? Because you believe them. Right. That's the only way you're getting your validation that you're okay or you think you're okay. Or that you're not okay. See, I must be right. I'm, I must be right about what I think about myself that I'm a loser because he said it too. So we're complex. Yes. We are. We, I always say that. I, I'm like, you know, we're smart to our own detriment at times because we can constantly come up with ways that we're not even aware of where we have a self-fulfilling prophecy coming true because we're not recognizing our own responsibility in creating it. Yeah. Self-sabotage for sure. Yeah, definitely. So real quick though, on that situation, because you were when you were talking about the race car drivers and it seemed like they came to a positive conclusion because I've never seen the movie. So in your own life story, I mean, did you and this person, did you guys come to uh, a place like that or what happened? You know, I think that, um, we, yeah, I think that there are sometimes in life you also decide and you get the choice of who you're going to continue to have in your life. And I just came to the conclusion that the experience that I've had with him for all of the time I've known him has never been good now that I have all this information and it's just not an energy that I want to have an exchange with. So I don't harbor any ill feelings. Um, but I also just don't want a connection and, um, and I feel good about that choice. That's a great point, by the way. I think that, and, and this is really speaking to the audience as well, I think that's really hard for people, especially when they are going through change or they are realizing that, well, a couple things are realizing that maybe somebody that, that they thought was on their team isn't on their team and they're really struggling with not only what that person is saying or doing, but letting go of it. That's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is just the struggle in and of itself that they're already in with this person and not knowing how to resolve it, not having the tools to resolve it. Well, I think there's two things. I, I think that in this case, um, I realized that it really wasn't personal. I think that I, I represented a, an obstacle for him as well as my husband and, and all of his behavior was really just about him. And if it hadn't been us, it would be other people. And maybe it was to other people also. So I just was really clear about what had happened on a human level. And then big picture, I was really clear, like we needed this and I'm okay with it. Right. It was not right, but I'm okay with it. Right. I think people get stuck because, and they stay in the hurt and the pain of it because they don't have clear boundaries on some level. They feel that this person could still harm them again. So the only way they feel that they can control that is by hating them or by holding a grudge. 
I have made a clear boundary now where there's no way that, that anything can ever happen again. So now I have no, I have no ill feelings. Do you see what I'm saying? I, it's, yeah. it's now just a process and the process is over. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's, you know, more so in speaking to the audience with people that are struggling with that. It's what would, if you were, you know, not you, let's say, because you've already figured it out, but you help people that go through these kind of situations. So what would be some of the tools that you would offer to somebody, you know, who, ha who doesn't maybe have the self-worth, who doesn't really have it figured out and really feels maybe in their case that this person has more control over their life than they have over their own life? So it's interesting because one thing I had decided early on, even when I was in it, that that person already was getting enough energy from me and I certainly wasn't going to give them more by letting it steal this moment for me this day, right? So even if they did something that affected me that ruined other days, now I'm in control of my time and I'm not going to give that person any more energy at all. Not, let, not even let them take it from me. I think that the hard part here is that when people feel harmed by other people, they need to stop and ask, why is this bothering me so much? Do I believe what they are saying? Do I believe in their opinion of me, right? So you need to check yourself with where you're at and that will be a really good indication of where you wanna start your own personal work. I want you to forget about the opposer and really look at what the opportunity for you here is. It doesn't mean you'll have to, it's not even about forgiving them. Just stop and see what is it bringing up for you internally and what are your options there? How can you start to fix that within yourself? I like that. And I agree with that. And I think that um, what you've been sharing is very valuable to people that are listening because they're people that want to grow. I mean, I think my audience is full of people that want to grow and are growing. And so they're always looking for new tools and new ways to look at things. So is there anything that you feel before we wrap it up that is important for somebody who's listening and, you know, they're on the self-help road, let's say, but they might be stuck, whether it's a relationship like we were just talking about or life in general that they feel is holding them back. And, and so what would you say to them? That's the thing. I, I think the biggest message is that you are responsible for the quality of your life. You, right? People will come in your journey and they might upset you and they might stop you sometimes. They might delay things. But at the end of the day, you are responsible for your happiness, for your outcome, for your passion, for your joy. And the other thing is, I think people underestimate who they are and who they could become. That is so, we are such powerful people. When you decide something, your mind already starts to actively work on finding that solution or making that come true. So all you need to do is align your soul's desires with your mind and just go forward. So as soon as you have a thought that's positive, follow it up by immediate action, immediate action, because far too often we think about things and we ruminate about it. And then we even speak to our friends about it. And then we, we replace talk for action. So we're talking, we think we're actually making changes. No, if you want something, it's your responsibility. And by the way, you are deserving of love and of good things. So start to create a new internal dialogue and don't make it about the others. Don't give them that power. I love that. I'm always talking about that too, because it isn't about other people. You have to live your life. And I always say, 
you do not want to sit in your armchair and live your life out. So I totally agree. But I like what you said about like fast action, like you have the thought and go do it. Yeah. So yes, that makes a difference. So if somebody wants to find you, where would they find you online? You can go to my website. It's called rethinklife.today. And you can follow me on Instagram, Monica Berg 74, and you can get my books on Amazon. Awesome. Well, I've really loved having you here today. It has been enlightening. Yeah. I just, I love what you have to say. And um, anybody, again, if you are looking for Monica, she's given you the information, but if you just happen to find this video somewhere online, you can always leave a comment wherever this is too. And we can make sure that Monica gets your message. So anyways, guys, thank you so much. And thank you, Monica, again. And You're welcome. And then with that, I will see you guys next time. And I hope that this has been something special like it's been for me. Take care. Bye-bye. For more information about Tracy and her programs and to set up a discovery session, email happiness at tracycrossley.com. That's happiness at tracycrossley.com. or go to the website for more information. And thank you for tuning in to Moving On 